Hypnotherapeuts Hermes Podcast. Welcome to the world of the Western esoteric tradition. Friends and listeners, welcome to this week's new episode of the Thoth Hermes podcast. Today is Sunday, March the 1st, 2020. My name is Rudolf. I'm your host and the creator of this podcast. What you are hearing today is episode 9 of season 4 and this episode is once again an Ex Libris episode. In Ex Libris, as you regulars of course already know, we introduce each time four books, or sometimes also events, from the world of the Western esoteric tradition. And this time it will be again four very varied works in print, so books, that we really think you should have a look at. I will tell you in a minute what four works you will hear about today. Please don't forget that the Thought Hermes podcast uses chapter marks also on all the episodes. So if your podcast player supports chapters, and most of them do nowadays, you can jump to a certain chapter directly back and forth. And that comes in quite handy with four different books you would like to listen about. But of course, if I were you... I would listen from the beginning to the end, and I think you won't regret it. A few notes on the Thoth Hermes podcast. We have been here for you for almost three years now, since April 2017. We have produced a bit over 50 episodes, and almost all of them are still available for you. You will find all of them on most of the major podcast outlets, like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spreaker, Spotify, iHeartRadio, etc., etc. And, of course, you can find an audio-only version on your The Thought Hermes YouTube channel as well. But best of all is probably to go to our website, www.thoughthermes.com, that is dot com, And to not only listen there, but also to be able to consult all the related show notes, links and comments. Also, this is the place to leave your own comments and to get in touch with me there. Which some of you did last week, by the way. Thank you for that. I really like to get in direct contact with you, my listeners. So leave me a voicemail on the website or use the contact form or go to Twitter and Facebook and contact me there. Tell me what you like, give me your wishes and proposals and of course tell me also what you would like to be done differently. Also please consider becoming a patron. You all know that it costs money to produce a podcast and therefore 
We need your support in order to be able to keep this podcast free. In each, if each of you only gave five cents per episode, we would be covered. So please go to the Patreon website, look for Thought Service Podcast and subscribe. Tiers start at $2 per episode for the first three episodes per month. So at $6 per month, you are part of it. And for the really smart ones among you, start right now, because given that this month, March, has 31 days and starts on the 1st, I mean, make your calculations. It means that two out of five episodes will not be charged for Patreon patrons. Isn't that the moment to start supporting us? You can also find the link on the website, and if you prefer a one-off donation, you click on the donation button instead of the Patreon button. Thanks, everyone. And thanks a lot to those of you who have already supported us financially. Okay, let's speak about today's content. In Chapter 1, I will present to you a book about 16th century physician alchemist and inventor Robert Flood. The great Jocelyn Godwin hath authored a book called The Greater and Lesser Worlds of Robert Flood, with the subtitle Macrocosm, Microcosm and Medicine. A great and beautiful book, which I will tell you more about in just a moment. Chapter 2 is, as always in our Ex Libris editions, called Greg's Choice. My good friend Greg Kaminsky, host of the Occult of Personality podcast, is again presenting to us a book that he really likes. It's not a brand new one, but an exciting one. The Royal Arch of Enoch. The Impact of Masonic Ritual, Philosophy and Symbolism. By Robert W. Sullivan IV. Very interesting and, as always, Greg is a master of presenting. A highly recommendable book to everyone who has not yet read it, and I'm sure many of you have not. The book presented in Chapter 3 has also been published already a couple of years ago, but here again, I think you must not miss that one. It has already become a very nice habitude that another friend of mine, Ursula Czerny from Salzburg, presents books here and books that she has read and really liked. The subject of this month's book is water. In their series of occult monographs, Three Hands Press, another very fine publisher, have issued Wished Waters, Wished spelled W-A, sorry, W-I-S-H-T, Aqueous Magic and the Cult of Holy Wells is the subtitle, and the book has been written by Gemma Gary. Let yourselves be inspired by what Ursula tells us about this great book. In Chapter 4, I usually present the 20-minute interview with someone who recently published a new book, and this is also the case today. Welcome the incomparable, one and only, Lon Milo Duquette back here on the Thoth Hermes podcast and we will talk about his newest release with Visor Books, 
Allow me to introduce an insider's guide to the occult. And all of you who have not yet listened to my long interview with Lon here on this podcast, please do so, it is worth it. I'll put the link into the show notes of today's shows, so next to this book. All right, so before we start with chapter one, we will of course listen to a piece of music. And well, as Lon Milo Duquette is on the show, he brought us again along a song written and sung by him. Thank you, Lon, for that. So, before delving into the world of books, let's go into the world of music, and here comes Sweet Babylon, written and performed by Lon Milo Duquette. Enjoy. <laughs> Sweet. Man. 
Chapter 1 The Greater and Lesser Worlds of Robert Flood Subtitled Macrocosm, Microcosm and Medicine And it was written by Jocelyn Godwin I don't think I need to introduce the author to you. Jocelyn Godwin was initially educated as a musicologist in Cambridge and Colonel Universities in the United Kingdom. He has written many very good books and in many of those books he links, of course, his musical knowledge to esotericism. But there are also many other titles like The Theosophical Enlightenment, Athanasius Kircher's Theater of the World and Atlantis and the Cycles of Time. Robert Flood, who this book is talking about, was a prominent English medical doctor following the tradition of Paracelsus with a lot of occult and scientific interests. So he was also a Kabbalist, an astrologer and a mathematician. He is best known, though, for his compilations of occult philosophy. While he followed Paracelsus in his medical views rather than the ancient authorities, he was also a believer that real wisdom was to be found in the writings of natural magicians. His view of these mystical authorities was inclined towards the great mathematicians and he believed, like Pythagoras and his followers, that numbers contained access to great hidden mysteries. Certainty in religion could be discovered only through serious study of numbers and ratios. It was this view that later brought Flood into severe conflict with Johannes Kepler. Between 1598 and 1604, Robert Flood studied medicine, chemistry and hermeticism on the European mainland following his graduation. His itinerary is not known in detail. On his own account, he spent the winter in the Pyrenees studying theurgy, the practice of rituals, with the Jesuits. Furthermore, he indicated that he traveled throughout Spain, Italy and Germany following his time in France. When he, after that, in 1604, returned to England, he would go to the Christ Church College in Oxford and intended to take a degree in medicine. The main requirements to obtain this at the time included demonstrating that he had read and understood the required medical texts, primarily those by the then authorities Galen and Hippocrates. Well, Flood graduated in May 1605, and after that he moved to London, making repeated attempts to enter the College of Physicians. But he encountered problems with the examiners there because of his uncon unconcealed contempt for the traditional medical schools, because he had adopted the views of Paracelsus. But also because Robert Flood really didn't like authority, especially those of the ancients like Galen. After at least six failures, he was admitted in 1609 and became a prosperous London doctor. He also participated in an inspection of the London apothecaries. He became such an established figure within the college 
that he was included in 17th century critiques of the college, including those by Nicholas Culpepper and Peter Curls. Subsequently, both his career and his standing in the college took a turn very much for the better. He was on good terms with Sir William Paddy and Flood was one of the first to support in print the theory of the circulation of the blood. In this new book by Jocelyn Govin, we find a kind of illustrated reference on Robert Flood, whose biography, in a way that it was shown on Wikipedia, I tried to make you a bit clearer. In this book, which has a bit over 250 pages, are included more than 200 illustrations by Robert Flood themselves, representing the whole corpus of Flood's iconography, each one accompanied by Godwin's expert and excellent commentary. You know by now, I think, how important also the book itself, the object, its look, its touch, etc. is to me. Well, this one is again a treat. It's a big size book, 8.5 on 11 inches, printed on a high quality thickish paper with a wonderful touch that goes so well with this kind of illustrations. It is not only full of interesting thought and fact, but a really good thing to keep in hands. In the book, Jocelyn Godwin explains Flood's theories on the correspondence between the macrocosm of elements, planets, stars, and subtle and divine beings, and the microcosm of the human being and its creative activities. Godwin shows how Flood's two worlds, the macrocosm and the microcosm, along with Paracelsus' medical principles and the works of Hermes Trismegistus, provided the foundation for his search for the cause and cure of all diseases. Sharing many passages translated for the first time from Flood's Latin, allowing him to speak for himself, Godwin explores Flood's thoughts on cosmic harmonies, divination, the Kabbalah, astrology, geomancy, and the rapport between the multiple levels of existence. He also analyzes Flood's writings in defense of alchemy and the Rosicrucians. If it has been rather difficult so far for the interested student of Hermeticism and Occultism to get a kind of an overview insight into flood thinking, this book now really opens a door. No, even better. I would name it an essential reference to flood thought and his own world. With this book, we can close a gap in the history and reference of the Western esoteric tradition by giving Robert Flood a stage for being one of the last Renaissance men. Let me finish this presentation by citing three endorsements on the back of the book. I think they perfectly render the mastery of that book and the high quality Jocelyn Godwin presents us here. Thomas William, University of Arizona, says, Beautifully written, this book allows the reader to skim or go deep 
with no danger of sinking. Glenn Alexander McGee, editor of the Cambridge Handbook of Western Mysticism and Esotericism. This lavishly illustrated book is the definitive guide to Robert Flood's remarkable attempt at the grand synthesis of all human knowledge. Jocelyn Godwin's superb scholarship and crystal clear prose are without equal. And finally, Giles Burnett from the Warburg Institute. Robert Flood attempted to embrace the whole of nature and man and of theory and practice in his volumes on the macrocosm, the microcosm and medicine and worked out his ideas through striking images. Jocelyn Goswin, in this masterly book, lays out the whole of Flood's world in all its splendor. And I may add, a great achievement by Jocelyn Godwin, but also by inner traditions. It is great to see that this kind of books is still produced in such a good quality today. The Greater and Lesser Worlds of Robert Flood, Macrocosm, Microcosm and Medicine by Jocelyn Godwin, published by Inner Traditions. Chapter 2 Greg's Choice Good evening. This is Greg Kaminsky of occultofpersonality.net and chamberofreflection.com. Thank you for joining me for Greg's Choice. Today I'm going to be reviewing a book that was released in 2011. So it's not exactly new, but it's fairly recent. Uh, the Royal Arch of Enoch, The Impact of Masonic Ritual, Philosophy, and Symbolism by Robert W. Sullivan IV. Esquire. I interviewed Robert Sullivan for my podcast, and you can find that interview on occultofpersonality.net if you search for Robert Sullivan. I believe the interview was in 2012. Uh, initially, Sullivan had contacted me about the possibility of being on the podcast to discuss his book and had sent me a copy uh, to that end. Um, <clears throat> initially, my thought was I didn't want to like the book. I didn't know who Robert Sullivan was. I'd never heard his name before. And 
felt like it was a really maybe overly ambitious effort for someone who hadn't, you know, proved himself to my satisfaction, uh, which is fairly ridiculous in obvious ways. But it was how I felt at the time. Now, I must tell you that uh, upon reading the book, my mind was completely changed. And same with talking to Sullivan as well. Um, I found the book and his thesis and the way he supports it to be really well done. Uh, I think he's really done tremendous research and he has a really profound grasp, intellectual grasp of uh, Masonic ritual, philosophy, uh, all of the symbolism underlying it and, and how it fits together in a greater historical context, which I think is important because that's really a crucial aspect of the story here. Um, there's a lot I would like to say about the book. Um, it's tremendously dense. Uh, it reads in s some ways like an academic textbook. Uh, Sullivan's descriptions of philosophies and history and symbolism and the way that these all come together in Freemasonry is really well done. Um, I like the way he has researched it. He's sourced everything. There's great illustrations throughout that are quite useful. I think, um, he's got footnotes, uh, in the text, which I find tremendously useful. I mean, in my opinion, this is one of my more favored Masonic uh, texts in terms of history, philosophy, symbolism, um, and maybe not necessarily of Freemasonry specifically, but certainly of everything that leads up to it. Uh, from a historical sense, um, it, it, you know, I don't know how useful the book is, but from an intellectual standpoint, from an understanding of Freemasonry and what it is, how it fits into the greater context of Western esoteric tradition, I think this is one of you know, my favorite books in that realm. I think Sullivan's done a great job on it. Um, I know he's currently sort of moved on to uh, symbolism in cinema primarily, and he's got maybe two or three books uh, on that topic that he's already put out. But... In my opinion, the Royal Arch of Enoch is, is really 
my favorite book of his, I have to say. So just to give you a, a brief example of some of the sort of insightful scholarship that goes into the Royal Arch of Enoch by Sullivan. Um, in the introduction, he, he talks about how the systems of craft masonry and high degree masonry, both of them were able to posit a view of what he describes as mechanistic oneness as the endpoint of society, which identified, and I'm quoting here now, identified de facto heresy within the solar drive to eliminate imperfection through tridentine counter-reformation militancy and high degree Masonic rituality. The counter-reformation was begun at the Council of Trent between 1545 and 1563 at the close of the Thirty Years' War. Its purpose consisted of four major elements. Number one, religious orders. Number two, ecclesiastical reconfiguration. Number three, spiritual movements. And number four, political dimensions. It was essentially a reactionary movement based on the Protestant Reformation of Martin Luther seeking to discourage, infiltrate, and thwart Protestantism at both outward, Baroque art and architecture, and secret levels. It is this thread or nexus between the Masonic high degrees and the Catholic revival that has fed so many wrong and confused theories of Illuminati Masonic-rooted conspiracies over the years. The more sober reality, however, is not dark conspiracy, but a profound and subterranean alliance between Catholic magisterium and apologetics and the cooler rationale mystique of ancient texts to provide mythic legitimacy for the principal agenda of modernity, to recreate society along heliocentric lines at a metaphysical and therefore confessional levels through the shift from Pythagoras, Archimedes of Syracuse, and Ptolemy the astronomer to Nicholas Copernicus, Johannes Kepler, Galileo Galilei, and Isaac Newton. Since Masonic law through the conceptual endpoint of initiation, the royal arch restoration of the lost name of God came ultimately to serve a numinous mission of managing access to the ineffable name of God, naming through the symbolism and metaphors of mechanism became a primary method of the fraternity cultural dynamic in the United States through the teaching of military and civil engineering at West Point and Union College, both deeply steeped in Masonic culture. West Point was founded by Freemason and the originator of the order of the Cincinnati, Henry Knox, the mechanistic idiom was extended through can canalization, railroading, and telegraphy into the American frontier. Similarly, the same inventions in Britain coupled with the heritage of empire and navigation, the symbolic naming process was extended through the powerful capacities of imperial forces to establish persuasive hegemonies over undeveloped regions. So I think that gives you a great example of why this is an extremely dense text and for someone like me can really nerd out over it.
um, because it's just packed with material that's uh, very much along these lines. Um, and he, he gets into uh, every subject that you would want to know about. Um, Masonic symbolism, the Blue Lodge and the High Degrees, Esoteric Masonry, Enoch and the Lost Prophet, the Roots of Masonic Philosophy, 1717 and the Impact of Ritual, uh, Michael the Chevalier Ramsey, DeWitt Clinton and the Empire State, uh, the Clinton Webb Ritual Synthesis and Salem Town, the United States of Freemasonry, Seals, Mottos, Colleges and Universities, the Masonic Apron, and three of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the Hudson Valley and the vistas of Baltimore, Maryland and St. Louis, Missouri, Masonic Design and Architecture, Masonic Law and Semiotics, the District of Columbia, the City of the Sun as the Masonic Utopian Template, and Masonic and Enochic Symbolism in Cinema. So that's just the, uh, the table of contents there. So you can see that this book is chock full of really great material. So um, I'm not saying it's something you want to sit down and read through in one sitting by any means, um, but this would even serve as a great uh, reference book to go on your shelf uh, along the lines maybe of a more refined and sophisticated uh, secret teachings sort of thing. Not to disparage Manly Hall's work in any way, but um, this is on a different level. Anyway, I think I've spoken long enough at this point, so... Obviously, I highly recommend The Royal Arch of Enoch by Robert Sullivan. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to talking with you next time. Chapter 3. And once again, it's a pleasure to have Ursula here in front of the microphone on the other side of Austria in Salzburg. Good morning, Ursula. <laughs> Good morning to you as well. And she brings a very interesting book to us today, which is called Wished Waters. Wished, W-I-S-H-T. Wished Waters in good old English, English. And by Gemma Gary. And this book was published by a very interesting publisher, also Three Hands Press. One of those houses who do really nice books and with very nice content and nicely presented. And it's one of those young and uh, progressive, um, oh yeah, I would call them progressive um, publishers nowadays that have appeared over the last years. And um, Ursula, you have read Wished Waters, and I think by its title and subtitle, which is Aquas Magica and Cult of Holy Wells, we are going to talk a lot about water today, aren't we? Exactly. Yes, that's true. <laughs> so tell us a bit about that book. 
Well, first of all, it's um, it's made in a beautiful way, as always, by uh, this publisher. So mm-hmm. I have read the hardcover edition. Um, it's a relatively short book. It's only about 140 pages, but it's packed with information. It's incredibly densely written. And um, for me personally, it sounds like a declaration of love to the magical properties of water as um, it was used in different branches of magic, but in folk magic. So it focuses on different traditions of folk magic, mainly in Western, in the Western part of Britain. Mm-hmm. Also um, Cornwall, for example. But it also describes... Um, in a, in a bit, um, in a more general view, the cult of water in Britain. So this is its main focus. Mm-hmm. And what um, what led me to this book? Basically, it's title because the title, I mean, the word wished isn't something I was familiar with, actually. Right. <laughs> it was something very special to me. And um, actually, it does mean in the dialects of Devon, Cornwall and Somerset, um, something that describes the presence of a supernatural influence. Mm-hmm. So it's um, it's a hint of something that's not that's outside of the usual framework. And it sound almost relates to bewitched also a bit. The wished bewitched. Is it, yes, yeah, yes, yeah. yes. You're absolutely yeah. right. And it also refers to certain times of the year or certain times of the day, which are. Um, also called liminal times, like midnight or May's Eve, for example. Right. And it uh, connects wonderfully with the quality of water itself, which is also something liminal, something that separates our um, standard existence or normal reality um, from this so-called altered reality, for for me at least. And Mm -hmm. I think for for many others as well. Actually, the longest chapter focuses on the magic of springs and holy wells and provides a very um, detailed and uh, wonderful overview um, on a lot of wells, sorry, (laughs) on a lot of wells in Britain and on the ways um, they were were and are used for magical purposes. Um, She, uh, Jenna Gary, starts this chapter with a note on the strange mix between Christianity and the old ways in Britain, which is also reflected in the practice of the use of these wells. Mm-hmm. So she um, she describes some well creation myths, like some of them involve beheaded saints, for example, right. or saints who um, strike the earth with a staff and open the earth up for the possibility that uh, chronic waters can emerge from the underworld, mainly. Mm-hmm. So you find some nice Bible references here, of course. And um, she um, she tries to tell us all the stories about the guardians of the wells, who can be human, like a witch, for example, of course, or also otherwise, like snakes, and what to do to gain their favor and to gain their assistance in conducting those rituals you can do surrounded um, in, in relation to these wells. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So this is um, this is a quite um, quite extensive topic. <laughs> right, and it sounds fascinating. And you yeah. mentioned Cornwall. It it reminds all of that lore and stories, and maybe also we'll know partly from from the, the, the Holy Grail stories, the British side of the Holy Grail stories, or sure. the Arthurian the Arthurian legend, right? Sure, mm-hmm. sure. And there's there's quite a lot of of that in, in there as well, mm-hmm. and. Um, the fact is that um, water is, has always been seen as kind of an ideal medium to to transfer properties to, like um, you could you could imprint it with certain properties. You could use it in magic um, for purposes like divination or like um, for curative magic or for curse magic. Anything you you needed it basically because it was. It was some kind of a liminal um, medium, and you could use it for your own purposes. And so, these um, very different um, ideas are touched upon in this in this book, and it's quite fascinating. The different traditions. I, I wasn't familiar with a lot of them, actually. Right. Yes. Right. I found it, for example, very fascinating that um, um, often enough, local priests, Catholic priests, who are involved in um, in rituals like exorcisms and baptisms surrounding a holy well, for example. So the water okay. from the holy well was used mm-hmm. in the church, for example. Right, and that's what she's talking about in this book, you mean? Yes, yeah. yes, absolutely. Ah, great. Mm. And there's also a very specific ritual like um, where you had to conduct a healing ritual um, around a, a specific well in Wales. And then you had to spend the night in the local church under, so beneath the communion table with a Bible as a pillow and the altar cloth as a blanket. Right. And you, you uh, went into a very deep trance state in a, in a kind of sleep incubation state. Mm-hmm. And then you spent the night there and next morning you, the ailment should have gone ideally. Right. Does she talk about the situation of churches? I mean, the geographical situation of churches in that context? Because often, of course, they are even located and the communion table, as you say, is located in a certain geomantic point. And maybe that's that's the combination of the well and that geomantic feeling, right? Might might absolutely be, yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. Very, very. So, um, Something else, what um, what I found very interesting was, um, I don't know if you're familiar with the tradition of, um, you, you can find sometimes at, at Holy Wells pieces of cloth, mm-hmm. uh, which are um, uh, which are bound into trees, into tree branches. No, I haven't heard that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's very fascinating because people who sought for healing, they took um, they took a piece of of the cloth of the patient torn into rags and then um, they were put into the holy well and these pieces were then bound into trees next to the well and during the time when the piece of cloth um, rotted the ailment went away so this is some some tradition you can still observe around certain holy wells in Britain so it's kind kind of a still living tradition yes okay I haven't heard that at all yeah okay it's quite interesting Mm -hmm. And she she also writes about um, sea witches who did some um, image magic who use who used the wells for uh, sea magic. 
like to um, in order to sell the winds to sailors, for example, or to make ships wreck at the shores, so that the local community could um, could gather up the cargo. So, oh right! Yeah, they, they were kind of serving the community itself. So lighting, uh, yes, wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. in a way. Interesting. In a way, yes. Mm-hmm. There's, there's also a very specific chapter on ponds and lakes and flowing waters. So the main focus is on holy wells, but not only. And um, that's quite um, quite fascinating information. So it's it's also seawater, not 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 just water, well yes. water, but seawater. Seawater right. and flowing water and the magic of dew, which mm. I never know about. I never knew about. This was something yeah. totally new for me. How you use dew um, in uh, for for purposes of healing, for example. Right, which in a way makes a lot of sense because because dew something that for the imaginary comes out of 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 the air and uh, for maybe from heaven even suddenly it's there so it's something exactly. that, that in a magical sense is very interesting and it is on, also available only for a very short period of time so yeah you need, exactly. you need to gather it at the right moment and and Absolutely uh, use true, it. Yeah. Yes, yeah. yeah also at some liminal moment in the day exactly exactly yeah. so i think i think she did a wonderful job in in putting all this um information and lore and mythology together and mm-hmm. and Turning into turning it into, into a fantastic um, compendium, but I think um, even though it focuses on Britain, um, it's it's not only so you can use it otherwhere as well. I think so. Mm-hmm. It's not only mm-hmm. the point that you have to be in Britain and work with these things in Britain. Right. No, it sounds to me it sounds like uh, an inspiration. You know, it sounds like something that. She takes the British side or the English side, even Cornwall and all that, as a, as an example. But that you could probably use the same ideas and techniques also in other parts of the world. I think yes, it's a absolutely. very universal water is a very universal element, of course. So, absolutely. so yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And she she also makes some some hints uh, to Greek traditions and and to Roman traditions. So okay. it's, it's nothing nothing that is um, limited to Britain, actually. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, no, that's very fascinating. Well, thank you, Ursula. Thank you for sharing that with us. Uh, once again, uh, you always bring those very interesting topics into this show. And uh, thank you for that. Let's um, talk soon again on another book in the next Ex Libris edition. See and speak you soon. Thank you. Thank you. Chapter 4 I have an enormous pleasure today because I have somebody here back in front of the microphone of the Thought Hermes podcast who everybody is looking forward to hear again here. And that's Lon Milo to get D. Lon Milo to get. Hello, hello, good afternoon. How are you today? I'm wonderful. Thank you very much for having me on again. Well, it's great to have you. Um, look, the reason why we are brought together again is that, of course, you have once again 
then made another book and that is great and this new book that we are going to talk about today is called allow me to introduce and it has also a subtitle which is probably uh, more helpful to, to everyone to know what it was about an insider's guide to the occult well Lon, there are a few guides to the occult out there but uh, an insider's guide and the insider that's you and that's of course something uh, very special how what brought you to to write that book and to produce it and what inspired you what what's your motivation well i can actually truthfully say that uh the book was 30 years in the making really <laughs> uh, <clears throat> it is uh, you know over the years i've been really lucky uh to, to meet uh, some of the most uh, brilliant and wonderful, uh, I guess we'd call them luminaries of uh, mag magical literature. Mm. Uh, and I've had the great privilege to uh, uh, meet and uh, I guess be colleagues uh, with uh, some of the greatest uh, living minds uh, in the esoteric field. Uh, and over the years, I've been, uh, they've been kind enough to, uh, whenever they publish a new book, uh, uh, many of them have asked me to uh, pen the foreword or the, the preface or the, the mm -hmm. introduction to, uh, uh, to their works. Uh, and also over the years, uh, as my dubious reputation as, as uh, <laughs> somewhat of a, at least a living uh, a living legend yeah, oh, yeah I wouldn't <laughs> say that living authority or something uh, <laughs> when, uh, when uh, classics of esoteric literature uh, uh, get republished like the works of John Dee or, or uh, George Von Velling's uh, Alchemist or, mm. or Abraham the Jew and uh, Abramelin, things like that. Uh, I've uh, I've been asked to pen the forewords or the introductory material uh, for those books as well, and uh, so it's been a great privilege, and uh, and uh, I take the responsibility uh, uh, pretty seriously, uh, and I do take a great deal of care in how I uh, approach the introductory material. And I usually try to do it from, a, from uh, how, how the material has affected me personally. So I put it in, in an anecdotal context uh, uh, many times. Mm -hmm. uh, and that sort of gives the reader a practical uh, or an example of a practical uh, example of how this material can be approached. And to tell you the truth, I'm very, very proud of the of the material. It's they're just short little pieces, of course. I think the longest one is four or five thousand words. Mm -hmm. But I try to to uh, uh, condense and crystallize uh, my understanding of the of the subject uh, as concisely and as digestibly as possible. And uh, what it's turned out to be is uh, some of my best work. Uh, it, at least in my opinion, it's the, it's the best stuff that I do 
that right. nobody ever <laughs> nobody ever reads. <laughs> not not that most people don't read the introductions to books because a lot of people do. But to tell you the truth, uh, I think a lot of it just gets sort of skimmed over in the reader's, uh, uh, you know, excitement to get to the meat of the text. And uh, so here I here I am with dozens of uh, of examples of what I consider my best work and my uh, uh, most important thoughts on a wide uh, array of magical uh, systems and techniques. Mm-hmm. And it's the stuff that's likely to, to uh, if I didn't do something with that material, most of it would drift into oblivion. <laughs> and uh, so I approached uh, my publisher, uh, Weiser, and uh, I said, look, you know, I've, I've written a lot of introductions for you guys and, and other publishers and, and, uh, uh, it's really good stuff. Let's put it together in like a, an anthology of my, right. of my introductions. Cause it would really kind of serve as a great, uh, uh, well, just what the subtitle suggests, it's an insider's guide to the, uh, to the occult. And I'm really pleased with, uh, uh, with the way it's turned out. And uh, so that's what I'm excited about today. Well, you should be. And that's also explains the title. Allow me to introduce, because of course that's all those introductions, as you said, yeah. but um, would you agree that of course, if you have to write some explanatory text about about the bigger volume than in four or 5,000 words, as you just said, um, probably it's also the quality comes by that concentration of words because you have to really, really concentrate each thought in a very particular way, doesn't you? Yeah. And uh, very seldom are you uh, obliged to have that kind of pressure put, right. <laughs> uh, put on you. You can sort of... Uh, uh, you know, feel free to just sort of wallow uh, in your page count. Right. And uh, for an introduction, you can't do that. It's, you got to just get right down to it. And uh, uh, it's not that I always uh, get right down to it in a technical way, uh, because that's what the, what the author is doing with the entire text of his or her book. Uh, but uh, to actually put it in perspective of how uh, uh, a reasonably normal person (laughs) (laughs) would actually, uh, uh, number one, be interested in this kind of stuff, and number number two, uh, how does it actually uh, uh, affect uh, one's life and one's consciousness? And and so... uh, Mm-hmm. Uh, that's what I mean by a- anecdotally. I, I try to approach the subject. Right, right. Well, I think uh, by my own experience, it would be important to read those forwards more often and more thoroughly, not just yours, but in general, because I think very often they have quite important things to say, like a, I'm a musician, like you like a counterpoint to, to the book itself as well. And uh, so it's which goes together, but which has another point of view, of course. Uh, 
not that I'm at all comparing anything that I've done to uh, uh, Jung, but uh, you know Jung's uh, introduction to uh, the, uh, Wilhelm's translation of the I Ching. Mm-hmm. If it hadn't have been for that, if it hadn't been for that introduction, uh, I don't think I would I would have gotten into the the translation its, itself with any uh, any form of preparation whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Very interesting point. Now, the book that we're talking about, um, well, we can have three approaches. One, the one that you just said, an anthology of uh, Lon's uh, introductions. That's one and very good reason to have it. But uh, on the other hand, you could say, is this a book... A, for people who start to be interested in the occult and want to have an overview type, or is it rather, in your point of view, for the more seasoned practitioner or at least reader who knows a lot about those books you're introducing here or at least about the subjects and and wants to get an extra point of view? Who's your audience for that book? What would you say? Uh, well, uh, first of all, initially the audience was for, for someone that wanted particular uh, 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 knowledge and edification in that particular subject. So mm-hmm. uh, I don't want to be uh, uh, trying to have my cake and eat it too. But uh, the idea that uh, uh, it's both for uh, uh, adepts and uh, and novices at the at the same time, mm-hmm. uh, uh, I can't help but writing uh, uh, in a way that ends up being at least relatively entertaining to the adept. <laughs> well, I think that's one of the miracles of your books, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, well I, that's just the way it, it turns out because that's <laughs> that's how the discussion uh, unfolds. Mm-hmm. But by the, but by the same token, I, I've had a, a Monday night magic class here at my my home in Costa Mesa since 1979. Right, and a weekly magic class and. Uh, uh, there's from like uh, you know eight to twenty five people every every uh, every week, mm-hmm. and every week there's somebody that is uh, uh, there for either the first time or almost the first time, very very entry level uh, uh, students, mm-hmm. and then there's there's adepts that just completely make my jaw drop with their with their uh, knowledge and insight mm-hmm. and so every week i've i've had to always consciously keep in mind as as we're d- discussing enochian magic or goetia or thelemic magic or or uh, any of the uh, other techniques and systems uh, that i have to keep everything at least approachable uh, to the person that's absolutely there for the first time. Mm-hmm. So it's, it is obliged me to walk this tightrope of being provocative and, and stimulating to the adept and at the same time not lose uh, 
the mm-hmm. the, the not newcomer. having it be, being lost yeah. on the on the newcomer. So right. I, I've always had to uh, always keep two parts of my brain going uh, at the same time, and I, I think that's that's helped immensely. In uh, once I started writing in uh, I guess eighty eight. Uh, I've just naturally tried to follow that same walk, that same tightrope. Right. Uh, but I think that that's a part of the part of the secret why why it works. Uh, would you think you being a musician, uh, and would you think that your stage experience as a musician has helped you with because you also have to pick people up where they are when they enter your performance so to speak um, does that experience help when you have teaching club you are teaching classes uh, i i think so uh because uh, the, my attitude is more or less the same uh my musical performances are, are uh, I don't see any difference between my musical performances and, and my uh, uh, magical uh, teachings or even ritual work uh, uh, when I'm working with other people. And so, yes, I think it has helped. Also, my, uh, 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 I, I quit college, actually, so I could attend the 1960s. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, uh, but I did uh, I did go to the Lee Strasberg uh, Theatrical Institute in, in right. Hollywood, and right. uh, Strasberg was still alive. And this, that's another one of the things I just lucked wow. into lucked yeah. into uh, uh, being able to study with Lee mm-hmm. Strasberg, and. Uh, 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 that kind of uh, uh, theatrical uh, instruction is really more or less on the lines of, of group therapy (laughs) 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 than it is acting school, you know? (laughs) And, uh, and I think Strasbourg helps uh, sort of uh, uh, set the stage to everything that I uh, have done since then has sort of, uh, been informed by Stanislavski. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, I think you're quite right. Um, now coming back to the book, um, you're talking about very different issues, of course, because you have written those introductions to so many different types of books all over the place. But, um, is there, I mean, maybe this is an unfair question, but is there two or three forwards, I don't talk about the books, forwards, which you would particularly like to underline or point out because they are particularly dear to you and to your work, which are now contained in this book? Uh, Yes. And... um so each of them is like a child. You can't pick. Sure. Uh, no, no, you don't uh, want to say this child is better than the other. I know. <laughs> right. Um, and I, and I've had the chance to, to write the introductory material to the very same books that, that inspired me as a, uh, uh, as a young man, the works of, uh, uh, Rigardi and, and Crowley and such. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I've done two, uh, uh, two, uh, 
I give two examples of books that I've written on the subject of Freemasonry and the magic of Freemasonry. And uh, one of them was a, an introduction not to a book, but uh, uh, a few years back, the, the Los Angeles Opera uh, Company, under the direction of Placido Domingo, uh, I did a, a new version of Mozart's Magic Flute at, mm -hmm. uh, down here at the L.A. Music Center. And uh, I uh, was allowed to give the, the opening the opening lecture, right? Okay, on Mozart, Mozart mm -hmm. and masonry. Uh, now I'm a mason and I'm a magician, <laughs> and uh, and I'm a musician too. And uh, good combination. <laughs> and and so uh, it was uh, uh, particularly gratifying to uh, uh, to give a talk like that to a non non-magical audience mm -hmm. uh, and uh, to, uh, to not only uh, uh, be able to uh, 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 reveal the beauties and the mystery and the profundity of, of uh, uh, Freemasonry and the esoteric mystery traditions, uh, but, but to put it in, in such a popular context. Uh, uh, so it, that in particular is one of the sweet spots, I think, in my uh, uh, in my uh, book here. But uh, uh, and also, I was uh, uh, honored to do the introduction to a version of the the Tao Te Ching, a modern uh, version of the Tao Te Ching called uh, uh, Finding a Way. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, that one still sort of makes me puddle up <laughs> too when, I, <laughs> when I read it. So, but they're all really good. And I, and uh, I know they are. Yeah, sure, sure. I know it's. That's yeah. why I'm saying it's unfair to ask that question. But yeah. still, still, you might have some preferred little children in there, and you, 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 that that's nice to hear them. <laughs> and w would you think that um, because you were mentioning history just now, and I had this discussion very recently with two other guests on this show, um, that magic or let's say occultism in Mason has now found a new kind of um, audience within masonry. Do you have that impression as well? Some of them just seem to have that expression. Have, uh, impression. Yeah. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, uh, 10 or 15 years ago, it was uh, the future of a masonry looked pretty uh, dire. Mm. Uh, but now the membership has turned around and the great percentage of the new people joining masonry are joining just for the esoteric uh uh not only traditions but uh they want to hear more about kabbalah mm -hmm. they want to hear more about uh, uh, uh mysticism and alchemy mm -hmm. and uh, uh that is very very gratifying yeah. Plus, plus the fact that that masonry is opening up uh, culturally, and uh, there is just as uh, uh, many women now 
uh, uh, interested in masonry and the type mm -hmm. of uh, co-masonry or right. or the, the the brand that that isn't is no longer sexist, you know. Right, right, right. right. No, that's I, I agree, and it's I think it's a good a good movement that we're living here. Well, Lon, thank you so much for this short talk with you. I will, you will be present. Your spirit will be present in a few weeks on this show again because I will be going to talk to your friend David Shoemaker, with who you also co-published, so to speak, or are part of the same project of book uh, um, that uh, that will we the Levelins book on ceremonial magic that I will present here on this show with David as well. Thank you for your time today. It was great to have you here. Any other projects, new projects upcoming that we should know about? Well, I've got uh, uh, at long last my tarot deck, uh, Tarot Ceremonial Magic, uh, has finally found a new, a wonderful new publisher. And it came, it came out in November. So uh, for, for years, literally years, it's uh, you've only been able to get it on eBay, you know, <laughs> for $700. Wow, it, which did not go to you, unfortunately. No, it did not go to me. Uh, but anyway, Tarot Ceremonial Magic is, is now out at a reasonable price and available worldwide uh, so um, great. Well, we'll mention that as well. I put also a link to that on the show notes so that people can find it. Great. Well, well thank you, Lon. It was thank great you. to have you back here. And well, hope to speak one other day again here. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Okay, folks. This has been chapter four already. And that means that this show is now coming to an end. This is the end of today's Ex Libris edition being episode 9 of season 4 of the Thoth Hermes podcast. We started with The Greater and Lesser Worlds of Robert Flood by Jocelyn Godwin, published by Inner Traditions. Followed The Royal Arch of Enoch by Robert W. Sullivan IV, published by Deadwood Publishing. Then came Wished Waters by Gemma Gary, published by Three Hands Press in their series Occult Monographs. And finally, Allow Me to Introduce by Lon Milo Ducat, published by Weiser Books. Okay, now what rests to be done is to announce to you our next episode, which will await you next Sunday, March the 8th. My guest in this show will be researcher Sarah Janes. Sarah is based in the United Kingdom and she is going to explore with us ancient and recent ideas about lucid dreaming, sleep medicine and dream incubation. I'm sure this is going to be something you won't want to miss. Thank you for being with us here today. I hope you enjoyed the show and got some nice new ideas about books you should own or at least read. And I'm already looking forward to welcoming you back on this show very soon. But for now, I tell you, take care, stay tuned, see you soon. <laughs>